God, you are so good to me, and all God's people said, amen. Counting your blessings is the surest way of recognizing all that God has done, and a good habit to get into as you meditate on the Word of God. It's good to be with you today, Kurt Parker. It's good to be back and teaching. You can turn those lights on in the back if you would, guys, and then I encourage you, if you would, if you've got little ones up through grade four, and you want to see them in an aged grade appropriate service through the sun, uh, church hour, you can have them dismissed at this time. To the four-year teachers, we'll meet them there. Love for you to do that if you'd like, or keep them with you if it's better for you. For the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to Second Corinthians chapter 5. It's good to see a lot of our college students back. It's just great to see your faces. I hope you had a fantastic summer, very restful, and, and you're restored and ready for a new semester. Our prayers for you to do well. If we can do anything to help you with that, let us know. Uh, you can come here and eat often, and that's sometimes helpful if you're a college student, so we'd love to have you do that, especially on Wednesday nights. Second Corinthians chapter 5, your copy of God's Word. God's plan for a healthy church is study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. Confidence in the future is our main topic, and we're going to read that passage in just a moment just to catch up. It's been a while, about five weeks really, I think, since we've been uh, in this passage, and so we're going to do a little catch up and uh, kind of restore our thoughts on those uh, things. But look there, if you would, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, we'll read all the way through verse 21, allow the Holy Spirit to go to work in the reading of his word. I'll be reading through the New American Standard. You can find that around you in the seats, or just be in the word that you usually read and memorize, and I'll give you verse cues, and we can stick together. So it starts off, we know that, so we're going to start right there, verse 1, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 2, for indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Verse 3, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Verse 4, for indeed while we are in this tent we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Verse 5, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge, therefore, verse 6, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Verse 9, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Verse 12, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Verse 15, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Verse 16, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. 
The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Verse 18, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, verse 19, that God, who is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, and we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's stop right there. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to read your word. And it occurred to me as we did it that how uh, we are very unique in some respects as a nation. There are very few nations can join along with us where your word can be read openly and proclaimed openly by people with no fear And so, Father, as we hear what your word says, understand what it means by what it says, and then begin to apply it to our lives, Lord, help us to do that boldly. We wish someday to stand in that throng of all the redeemed and from all the nations and tongues and tribes and not be ashamed that we, of all people, who have the right and the opportunity to proclaim your word clearly should be least in obeying it. So, Father... As I pray for myself before we even started, and for those who are here to hear, let your word be quickened in us, and by your Holy Spirit, do the work you need to do through us and in us, we might be conformed to the image of your Son. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. This fifth chapter, as Paul is revealing his heart to the church, and you can really sense that, can't you, as we read through just some of the things that he understands and has learned Uh, about life and about living for Christ, he really focuses on, in this chapter, confidence in the future. And he starts with confidence in death and some reasons why the believer can have a confident assurance of what happens beyond this temporary life. So in verses 1 through 5, he gives us some waypoints. He says, the scriptures assure that death is an upgrade. So as we think about that one thing that everybody fears perhaps more than any other thing, which is the end of their physical life, He wants to make sure that he deals with that first. And he makes it clear that the scriptures assured us that death is an upgrade to what we have now. And we know we have a longing in the world and that that world can't satisfy that longing. And that's another way that we know we're prepared for a future kingdom. And the Lord has guaranteed that that longing the world can't satisfy will be fully satisfied in the future. And so we can have that that confidence that as we move into that long tomorrow that the Lord has promised he'll fulfill those longings. And we get to verse 5, and we see that the work we see God doing in our lives right now through the Holy Spirit is part of that guarantee that that final transformation is God's plan and it's going to happen. So in other words, the more that you're controlled by the Holy Spirit and you see the Holy Spirit's work in your life doing things that you couldn't do apart from his help, that is more assurance that there's this future plan for you and he's at work in your life now. Then verse 6 tells us that inside the heart of a believer is a desire to depart from here. Uh, because uh, the Lord has assured us that we will immediately be with him forever. And, uh, and Paul says, uh, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. And so as we concluded that section, I encouraged you and myself as well, is that your real heart desire? You long to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Because that really is, as we understand death and its transition to the long tomorrow and all the Lord has planned, can be a real source of joy for us. 
And so I encourage you if, uh, to have that heart. And if you perhaps you wonder and you struggle with that, perhaps you can evaluate that and perhaps uh, a love for the world that's a little too strong. A value of relationships here that's greater than perhaps they should be. Uh, or maybe a, 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 a deadening a little bit to the sins that are there and that we deal with all the time, uh, which has deadened our desire to be with the Lord. And so these are things that are very important, I think, for Paul that's sharing his heart. And then our next stop in the competence he has is in final judgment. Now, this is a, this is a passage that is part of many in the scriptures that deal with final judgment. And we pick up in verse 9, you can look there. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether to be at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, we saw a few principles from this passage, which really became waypoints for us as Paul shared his heart. Uh, And this is only part of a large emphasis in the New Testament. And Paul shares really one of the major motivations for him to do ministry, which is this future final meeting and accountability with the Lord. And he emphasizes this so much, it's got to be a serious emphasis in the church. Um, the future final accountability with the Lord is something that motivates us to do all that we do. And Paul uh, makes it very clear, and he's not ashamed of that. And we'll barely skim the surface of our previous studies. If you've missed any of this, you can catch up online. But first of all, Paul desired to labor in such a way that would please the Lord. That's really how verse 9 starts. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing. We're going to labor in such a way to be pleasing to the Lord. I think most people would say, that's, that's something I want. I want to labor in such a way that the Lord will be pleased. Because he knew... Christ's judgment is coming, and he's going to evaluate our work and recompense us for that work. He makes sure that what he's doing uh, is work that's going to last. So do your ministry then with all your effort, because even each believer is building a spiritual house, and there are a variety of building materials. And we talked about all this, and this is very clear uh, throughout these two letters for sure, that you are, as you live your life as a believer, building on a foundation of Christ and your salvation. And you build with certain building materials. And depending on how you go about doing it and why you do it and some of the motivations and all of that and the effort that you put in will depend, will determine what you're building with. And so uh, some of those building materials will last forever, gold, silver, and costly stone. Some won't, wood, hay, and straw. You can build with any of those things. God's storehouses are your resources, and the Holy Spirit guides you in those things, and you can lay up whatever you want to lay up depending on how you're doing it. So we went through all of that. I encourage you to get back there. This is so important in the scriptures, and it's not emphasized enough in the New Testament church that I think it's very important for us to make sure we understand this very clearly. Now, this is a judgment that's not for sin, because sin went on whom? Your sin went on Christ at salvation, and he has borne all your guilt. So you don't bear guilt for sin, and you don't bear punishment for sin. What you will be judged on is how you lived your life after you came to faith. The things that you did and what it results in what you're going to build what you've built with, that building that's going to stand, and the Lord's going to test that by fire. And every one of us has a ministry based on upon the foundation that's been laid, and Paul's careful, he said, how he builds on it so that he could have confidence in the future, and, and he admonishes us to be careful how we build on it as well. And we saw some wonderful uh, clues to Paul's confidence and really some simple instruction from the Word of God. We saw that building materials that last uh, are found in being about the work of the Great Commission. So we just kind of searched the Scripture. So where do we see, where do we see reward? Where do we see the Lord saying, yes, this is a good thing? And we saw the first thing about it is being about the Great Commission. And we understand that that's everybody's work, right? Uh, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, right? That's everybody's job. That's why we were left here 
And we saw that building materials that last are found in continually bringing your attitude into biblical alignment, taking captive those thoughts that betray fleshliness. We saw that there's reward for doing that, so we understand that's good building material being about those things. It's also found, obviously, in constantly evaluating what you're doing in relation to clear biblical instruction. This is why we prayed at the very beginning. What does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply? It's very simple as we read the word of God on a daily basis. When it says do something, you do it. And when it says don't do something, you don't do it, right? It's just very, it can just start out very simply like that. I think if we all began it with that premise, that that's how we're going to study the word of God, and we just evaluate how our actions align with what it says do or don't do, that's a really great start. And so we understand then that uh, obviously just how you're spending your time, don't waste a moment, how you understand biblical instruction, letting the word of God dwell in you in all wisdom. That's Colossians 3, right? We say that all the time. Verse 16, what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And then do that. Because we know that, you know, using spiritual gifts too, as we've, we've looked at numerous times, is one of the ways, one of the supreme ways God wants to use you. We saw that's another obvious way to build with material that's going to last. So as you begin to get involved in ministry, the Lord shows the spiritual gifts that he's given you. You begin to use and operate inside those gifts. You're laying up, found, you're laying up on that foundation, building materials that are going to last through that evaluation. And not only will it last, we saw in numerous places that God has promised to reward you for what remains in the form of crowns and and position and recognition. We went through all of that. So when you get to the end of your life, you go through this beam of seat judgment, whatever's left uh, that lasts for eternity, how you did it, why you did it, your motivations, all that kind of your effort, all that's left. And the Lord takes that and rewards you for those things that remain. And we looked at all kinds of background passages. You can get back with that online if you'd like to. But we covered a number of examples of his promises. And because this was Paul's major motivation, this future meeting, he also warned the church that it's possible, and we saw this last time, it's possible to build something and not receive a reward for it, just obviously, right? I mean, if, if you're instructed to build in such a way that's going to last, then it's obviously possible from the opposite side to be doing things that will get no reward. In other words, people say, well, what happens at the end of my life? Well, perhaps you'll get to the end of your life after a whole lifetime of labor and find out not much remained. That's possible. In fact, the Bible very clearly says some will go through that judgment and escape just with their robe of righteousness, and there'll be some sorrow and regret, and others perhaps more. And it's really hard to evaluate one another, isn't it? Because we don't know what the motivation is. We don't know what the spiritual gifts are. We don't know where the Lord's, what the Lord's doing in their life. But the fact of the matter is that it's possible, Paul said very clearly, to build something and not receive any reward for it. And also, he said that you can be talked into doing what's worthless. And so you can get with other people and realize uh, that you're doing things that don't last, so you've got to be careful who you're associating with. Those people who want to build on a foundation of Christ, things that are going to last, those are the folks you want to, you want to associate with. And so there'll be no reward for what's worthless. Okay? It's not sin. It just doesn't amount to anything. See, it's a zero sum. But the rewards you receive for building with the right materials and whatever form they take and whatever the reward is, however it works out, number one, is going to last for eternity. And number two, it will somehow work out for his praise and his glory and his honor. So for eternity, whatever lasts and you're rewarded for is going to work out for his praise and his glory and honor forever. And that, beloved, that's something to aspire to, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the only thing that's going to matter at that point is how much is going to last. Now, the last time we were together, we set ourselves to understand this next section of Paul's instructions. And this is how to have confidence in your conscience. Now, mark this. This, this evaluates the how and the what and the why of your ministry, which has obviously a direct connection to the previous topic of confidence and judgment, right? Because the how and the why and the what of your ministry are going to determine some of the building materials you're going to use. 
And what we saw here was is that Paul has moved from how to know you're building with the right materials to how to plan your life ministry in order to persuade those in your charge of the importance of that future judgment. So whatever your ministry is, you're orientating around life habits that will lead towards building materials that are going to last. So Paul moves from what you're building with to how you're encouraging others to do that very same thing. And Paul shares his heart on a very familiar topic, his own conscience, and, and we get to learn again how to live in such a way that our conscience can be clear and we can be confident in the sum of our ministry at the end. So it's just kind of a, a middle-of-the-road check. It's kind of like evaluating what's going on, getting out, of the, getting out of the rig while you're pulling your travel trailer and just walking down the side and making sure everything's working like it should be, right? It's just a check along the way. How can your conscience be clear? Well, these things are going to be true about you. So look at verse 11, if you would. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again committing ourselves to you, but we are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, verse 15, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So look there. We marked several important waypoints in this verse that we've labeled as confidence and conscience principles. And again, just kind of working our way through and giving ourselves some handholds in the scripture so we know what's being said. And I think you're tracking right along with it now that you see where Paul is going with this. And we'll just cover them very quickly by way of a review. We noted that many times as we've studied the New Testament, that this final day of reckoning is the major motivation that Paul, for all that Paul does. And, and that was our first confidence in and com, uh, conscience principle. Paul recognizes that his whole life and ministry will come under God's scrutiny. So if you want to live, have a good conscience for the future, let your ministry be motivated by a reverential awe of that meeting. So just kind of a check along the way. Are you personally in reverential awe? Do you, do you therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord? That's what Paul says. So the fear for believers is a reverential awe, right? Because his wrath has been carried out on Christ. And, of course, we do fear the Lord in a, in a very real sense because the, he has the right to deal with our sin however he wants. Correct? If you think of the Lord in a correct, in a correct relationship with him, in, in a saved relationship, and then you are walking in such a way that's disobedient to him, you should have a little fear. Correct? Because the Lord can deal with your sin however he wants, and that should bring a little fear to your heart. But it's a reverential awe, not a terror that he's going to cast you away because he's already cast his, his wrath on Christ. So Paul says, listen, live your life in such a way that you're motivated by a reverential awe, a fear of the Lord, of that meeting. That's a great conscience check. Everything that you do motivated by this future meeting. And now we notice that this fear of the Lord is Paul's motivation to maintain a good conscience. And really, it points out his sincerity, his integrity over the course of the ministry. And that future accountability motivates Paul uh, to do what? Well, to persuade men, right? That's what it says. Um, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And that takes us, and that's really the key phrase here, we persuade men. And that takes us to our second confidence and conscience principle. Be sure the ministry you have with people prepares them for that future judgment. Paul says, we understand the fear of the Lord. We live inside that reverential awe of a future meeting. It really kind of dominates the horizon, if you will. And because it dominates the horizon, then we are about making sure other people are aware of this as well. As we do our men's ministry, Sunday school, those kinds of things that we do, VBS, we are, we are aware of that future judgment. We teach because we want people, Christians, to be brought into conformity to a life that builds for the future. 
And so this is about everything that we do here. This is a, it's part of our conscience, confidence and conscience principle. And that's part of the integrity of your ministry, see. Let your words reveal a genuine concern for the future appointment. And you may be criticized for saying hard things, uh, you know, and, and the rest of verse 11 really lets them know that's exactly what he did. We are made manifest. Look there in verse 11. We are made manifest to God and hope that we're made manifest also in your conscience. He understands there's some difficult times there in Corinth, right? And they have some bad feelings about him. And they have some accusations and they're hard on him and they, and they backbite about him and all that. But he wants them to know that he's genuine. He primarily focuses on the fact that he has been preparing them for this coming day and his integrity as a minister is intact. You know, I didn't tickle your ears, Paul said. You know, I didn't, my purpose was not to affirm you and make you feel good every time we got together about yourself, okay? And that's our third principle by way of encouragement. God keeps track of that type of genuine ministry. We are made manifest to God. He said, regardless of how perhaps you perceive us at any given point, and Paul pulls you in again, when you set the level of genuineness and integrity and ministry to this level, God keeps track of that, see? And, and Paul says, you know, God knows me, I manifest to him, he knows my heart, he knows my integrity, and Paul says, so he's just pulling God in as the witness right there before them. So you don't do that unless you're pretty confident about what you've done is exactly what the scriptures say you're supposed to be doing. So he says, you know, we're made manifest to God, Here's, he's my witness and he's right here, okay? So Paul says, what I'm concerned about is that you understand the purpose of my ministry like God knows it. That's Paul's point with the phrase. And I hope he says that we're made manifest also in your consciences. So Paul says, regardless of what you may say or how you may gossip about me, my hope is that you know or will know my true motives. And that was our confidence and conscience principle number four. You always hope for that little victory, the movement of people in the right direction as it relates to their conduct. And you labor for that end. I hope, he says, and I hope that we're made manifest also in your consciences. I hope that you come around to the understanding of why we've done what we've done and begin to think like we've asked you to think. I hope someday you'll understand our ministry, he says, like God understands the ministry he's given us to do. And to review, listen, to review, that motive that yields building material that lasts is right here, see? Our confidence and conscience principle, you hope for those little victories, the movement of people in the right direction as it relates to their conduct, and you labor to that end, and that labor, beloved, that labor for correct conduct and those who are in your charge, that is building material that lasts, okay? That really sums up this whole thing, right? You're... You're focused on helping them prepare and have a reverential awe for that meeting and then bring their life into accountability in that respect. And and his hope has always been that the labor he put in would result in spiritual fruit. And we saw some illustrations of Paul's comments to other churches. We won't go back through those again. Uh, Churches he helped and took time with. And then he always feared for those churches. Remember, he said, lest I labor over you in vain. Remember, Paul says that numerous times in the New Testament. And so he goes, he's always concerned that the labor he put in wouldn't produce the spiritual fruit that it should have produced. And he wanted to see that spiritual fruit, movement towards a lifetime of building a spiritual building that would stand the test. And on that future day, he doesn't want them to to end up with wood, hay, and straw. And he even regularly evaluated himself to make sure that he was building with the correct materials and his own motives and whether his actions were fully informed by the right things. Now, Philippians 2, verse 16, very important uh, passage. Holding fast the word of life, he said, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. See, you hear it? Paul says, I'm holding fast the word of life. I'm teaching you the word of God in such a way that you can align your life with it. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, that's always the judgment. Everything about Paul's ministry is about that time where he's going to meet Christ. And in the day of Christ, I'll have reason to glory. Well, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't be able to glory, right, if everything you built with was wood, hay, and straw. You're going to barely escape. 
I'll have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor told in vain. Paul's motivation, that future appointment. Paul's building a spiritual house of his own, and he's toiling so that those under his care could build with the right materials. And it's important to remember, it's not that Paul didn't sin. Or, or that you and I, with a fully informed conscience, don't sin. It's just that he responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're supposed to do as well. So when we're in a place where we're displeasing to the Lord, we recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit in our life, and we get that straight. Because no one is without sin. And Paul wasn't either. So he's not saying, hey, I live my life perfectly sinless before you, so now I can glory when we get to the end. He's just saying, listen, I aligned myself with the Word of God. That means... It's informing your conscience correctly on a day-to-day basis. And we say that often, right, when I, when I encourage you to be in the Word each day. One of the benefits of being in the Word each day is what? Holding up the Holy Standard next to your own life. I mean, one of the benefits, of course, of being in the Word is the worship that occurs. Every time you recognize a promise that the Lord has given you, a blessing, that he, and perhaps when you were singing and per- worshiping the Lord today and thinking about how good God is, you worshiped Him for that. And so knowing how good God is, you worship. But when you hold up the Holy Standard, what do you do? You confess and you repent and you get it straight and you keep short sinless and you want the Lord to uncover all those camouflage things in your life and, and parts of your character that don't honor him, right? And, and it just goes on and on. And the more you're in the word, the more he likes to do that and uncover and take out all the faulty parts and put the right parts in. And this is that, this is that sanctification that occurs through the ministry of the word of God. So it's a blessing to be able to do that and to understand that's, that's the point, okay? And so Paul could be confident then that his, in the future that his conscience would be clear because he's constantly dealing with those kinds of things. We also saw a few things, and I'll just touch on them briefly. Habits that can lead to a faulty conscience. We took some passages in, but I'll just sum them up for you. Uh, number one, as a teacher, teaching people things that they should do, so bringing their life in line with that future judgment, but not doing those things yourself. Uh, that's a habit that's going to betray your conscience and take away the confidence you could have for the future. You're saying one thing, one form of ethic, and then you're living in some, in some other ethic, okay? Saying things but not doing them, that's a lack of integrity. You're going to have trouble with your conscience. You're going to have trouble at the end, and you're going to be building with wood, hay, and straw. It's being divided, and it should just be obvious, but that's a big no-no. Secondly, doing things for the purpose of praise of people. And we looked at this a few months ago as we went through some of the other uh, things that the Lord rewards us for, but doing things as a motivation for the praise of people or that people will know that you did them betrays a faulty conscience, okay? If you're just doing things so people will know that you did them, that undermines your integrity and takes away the confidence you could have for the future. And later, Jesus pointed out uh, some very glaring flaws in the ministry of the uh, the scribes and Pharisees. And I've told you before, why do we have scribes and Pharisees in the New Testament? So that you'll know how you shouldn't act, okay? That sums up the reason why we have them. We don't want to be that way. And so Jesus is addressing them, and he has some pretty scorching uh, it's scorching comments in Matthew 23. We won't read it again, but it helps us to know what type of ministry habits to avoid. And one of those is this, not taking care of those hidden things that you don't want anybody to know about. And we looked at that at the beginning of this passage. Do you remember that? Uh, that you, you're, you're getting rid of, you're forsaking the hidden things, the things of shame, things you don't want anybody to know about. Well, beloved, if you don't want anybody to know about them, then don't hang on to them. As they come in, you get rid of them. And you're constantly in that cycle of booting it out. Taking captive every thought, see? So, not keeping a short sin list, that's going to betray your conscience, undermine your integrity, and take away the confidence you could have for the future. That's why Jesus said, you're, you're a whited sepulcher, but what are you full of? Dead men's bones. You look great on the outside, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, but inside, not so much. 
And then from the life of Job, we were able to see a number of things that were so immensely satisfying. But one of the most important things was this confidence and conscience principle. And perhaps this is where you are this week, or maybe you've been this way this year, or maybe it's in, in your future. It's absolutely possible to pass through the most difficult times you can imagine and stay on track and retain your integrity and finish your race with a clear conscience, even in the midst of hardship. Even in the midst of difficult times, physically or, or emotionally or, or uh, materially or whatever, it's possible to live in such a way that you're building with the right materials and have a good conscience along the way. As long as when, as John spoke last week, as long as when the squeeze is on you, uh, it is not the wine of why me, Lord, but it is the wonderful wine of this is all straight from your hand. And I may not understand why I'm going through these difficult times, but I want to bring glory to your name regardless of what happens. And so, very important. Difficult times are no hindrance to confident future if we understand the process. Whatever it is that the Lord is doing, he's doing it for his own glory, and you can be part of that. And we know from First Peter, just as a side note, some things physically, and from Paul really at the end of this chapter, at the end of this book as well, some things physically, which you bear up under correctly, give you a way to glorify the Lord forever in the eternal kingdom that other people will not have. And what a joy that's going to be, to have a way to glorify the Lord that other people don't have because he took you through a very difficult time or you started off in a rough area and you came through that and became a way to, you became a person who comforts others and encourages others and you used that hardship to bring glory and, and honor and light to the Lord. So shepherding God's people of all the possible duties certainly requires integrity. It's part of the foundation of a good conscience. That's Paul's, of course, orientation. He's shepherding. Uh, but, of course, it has a, a, a much broader application. To preach the truth demands that somebody lives the truth, right? To call other people to follow the truth demands uh, that, you know, I live for that future day and I, and I obey the truth and I'm teaching other people to do it. And that alone makes ministry what it ought to be, see? That makes God-honoring, Christ-exalting, Holy Spirit-empowered ministry. And that gives you the sense of why Paul mentions this so many times. A good conscience, ministry that's made manifest before the Lord, and he approves of it. And Paul, Paul knew that the people of God should expect to be ministered to by men of integrity. He knew that the church needed to be ministered to by men who pointed them to that final day of judgment and lived accordingly um, for, in front of them and, and expected the, uh, those he ministered to to live that way. See? Integrity in spiritual leaders, ministers, pastors, Sunday school teachers, whatever your ministry is, it's the thing that motivated Paul. It's the crucial thing. And a man without that is a hypocrite, and he is a tomb painted white, and that is not very good company. Now, let's look at our next section. That's verse 12. Look there if you would with me. And this is where we are going to pick up today. We, we're not again, he said, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, Paul says. That commending, soon a statement, present, active, indicative. Uh, our reality, he says, is not going to be constantly taking a stand, convincing you of our good reputation and our faithfulness. Paul says, I'm not, not going back there again and doing this over and over again. I'm not going to keep doing it. If someone wants, Paul says, to believe something bad about me, nothing he's going to say is going to change that. Paul's heart comes through in this statement. He knows the nature of the church. He, he, and, and you know how they've treated Paul in the past because you were with us if you were in, in the first letter we studied. So you understand how all of this has worked its way out? 
you know the unspoken response from Paul that's just obvious. He, he just got through talking about future judgment, and he's constantly reinforcing his teaching to all the churches. And this is the second time for this church that he's talked about future judgment. And he knows how critical they are, and he envisions all the old criticisms coming to the surface again. And, you know, people evaluating him instead of evaluating themselves. You know how that goes. You're pretty good at, you know, being a judge of someone else, but pretty bad at uh, being a judge of yourself. And so he says, you know, all those things we just talked about are not... Uh, me bragging so that you'll accept me. And that leads out to our next principle from this passage. So confidence and conscience principle number six, don't worry about what everybody says. So as you're doing your ministry, it's possible that you're in a very difficult place and people say some things about you and it's constantly criticizing you and whatever, you know, don't worry about what everybody says. Your ministry of integrity will speak for itself and give the church a chance to recognize it for what it is and how it's done. Just do what you're going to do faithfully according to the word of God, keeping it aligned with what the word says, informing your conscience correctly. And regardless of perhaps if you had some difficult times, hardship, right? We like to judge faithful ministry by uh, how many thousands of people come. Listen, the Lord doesn't judge it that way, okay? He judges it by, are you doing what I've asked you to do and giving the message you're supposed to give regardless of what somebody else may do? And then what you do with it or what someone else who hears does with it is between you and the Lord, so successful ministry is based on being faithful to what you understand is to be true. And when you think about Paul's position, it really doesn't matter what Paul says about his ministry and his authority because whatever he says is going to be construed as just pride or haughtiness. He just defends himself. People say, see, you're just so prideful. You don't ever listen to me, Paul. You're just telling me what your thoughts are, you know? So he just says, hey, we're giving you an occasion to be proud of us. You know, instead of being ashamed of Paul and critical of Paul and Timothy and Titus, that's the we here. They, they have a reason to be proud of him and, and all God has accomplished in him. So, I mean, realistically, here's where, here's Paul's true longing. You know, he's proud of the faithful work he's done among them. He loves them. He wants them to understand this and revere him in the same way. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter as long as Paul has a clear conscience. But it's really nice to be accepted, isn't it? It's really nice to be appreciated. And, and you really see the heartache of Paul here among other places. You can hear Paul say, you know, do you have any idea how much I've labored over you? And how much I've suffered on your behalf, like we saw in earlier verses in this chapter, everything the Lord has accomplished in me through my suffering for Christ's sake, some of it, of course, at your hands. See, he suffered, and some of it was at the hands of the church, but everything he's suffered, uh, accomplished through me through his suffering has made me the man that I am, and I can look back on my life with a clear conscience. Paul says, regardless of the naysayers, lives were changed, people were growing and maturing, and the Lord made that clear. That's why he says earlier, he says, you are my letter. Right? I don't need a letter of recommendation. You're my letter. What the Lord's accomplishing in your life is because I've done those things that I've done. So Paul says, just take a sideways glance at the ones who are criticizing me and see what they think is important and what I have taught you is important and compare those. And that's basically what he says in the next part of our passage in Second Corinthians 5.12, last part of the verse. Look there. So he says, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. What's that mean? Well, You'll know what to say when ministry is done differently than God has directed it to be done. In other words, you'll know when you have a teacher that isn't motivating you by reminding you of the judgment to come, okay? Now that you've got a teacher that's making you feel good about yourself all the time. Guess what? You're not going to be able to motivate people about the judgment to come and always make people feel good about themselves. Those things are mutually exclusive. So Paul says, listen, you're going to have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart because you've seen how it's supposed to be done. Someday, maybe you'll be proud of us because you've seen us do it correctly and you'll know 
what to say. And that was our seventh confidence and conscience principle. If you want confidence in the future, teach the church discernment. Do it correctly long enough that they'll understand when it's not correct. Be faithful about teaching the word to model that so they'll know what it looks like to read and study the word. And then they'll know when it's not being done correctly. Exegete the word as carefully as you can. Take it from the kitchen to the table and don't drop any of it. And then people will know that's what's supposed to be done. And then when people try to spiritualize a verse and they try to, you know, they want to say something. So they use a verse. They use the Bible instead of teach the Bible. It's very common today. Use the Bible instead of teach the Bible. I'll find a verse that says what I want to say because I'm coming with an agenda. And I want to say this certain thing to you. So I'll take this passage and I'll read it. And then I'll just talk about whatever I want to talk about to begin with. Beloved, that is not taking the word of God from the kitchen to the table as an underroar and making sure you didn't spill any of it. So you just do it faithfully enough, Paul says. I do this faithfully enough in front of you, and you'll have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart, see? And what's the easiest way to know that they're false from this passage? Here it is. It's also in your notes. You can copy this down. They're more concerned about how it looks than how it is. What's the substance? They're more concerned about what it looks like on the outside, see? Faithfulness to persuade men and women about the importance of the coming judgment and to live accordingly is being faithful to your calling, and it will show the stark difference between false and true teachers. So that's one of those things you can identify right away, and it builds this spiritual building, of course, as a side note, it goes right back to our previous topic of gold and silver and costly stone. Now look at verse 13. And this is an interesting statement from Paul, verse 2 Corinthians 5, 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. So Paul's very focused on these very few things, as we've seen. Very one-tracked mind, right? Paul was motivated by one thing, pretty much. And so derivatives of those things, but pretty much one thing. Very one-tracked and relentless in the presentation of the gospel and a ministry among the churches dominated by persuading men to be obedient to the faith out of a holy reverence for the future judgment. So presenting the gospel and then discipling people. Bringing your life in alignment with what the scripture says. Presenting the gospel, one-track mind for Paul. Get the gospel out to the Gentiles and then bring them into the knowledge of Christ, teaching them everything Jesus taught. See? And his whole life since his redemption was focused very tightly on those things. He wasn't concerned about his welfare. He wasn't concerned about his health, uh, where he laid his head, or the sentence of death that was always on him. We saw all of that. And it would, it would seem from this verse that perhaps because of this very singular focus, the apostle Paul had even been accused of insanity. Paul, you're just so one-tracked. You know, you're a fanatic at various forms of mental disturbance. There's something wrong with you. You don't even care where you sleep. You don't care where you, what you eat. You don't care what happens to you. You don't care if, if you're in danger from countrymen, in danger from the rivers, in danger from the seas. You don't, you don't care. It makes no difference to you, Paul. You, there's something the matter with you. Uh, that verb, um, he says, if we are beside ourselves, existamen, is a verb, aorist, active, indicative. It means to be out of position to be off of a certain point, to drift away from a GPS place, perhaps a marker. It's not being where you should be. And, and so what they're saying is this, that at some point, some who observed Paul were claiming he, you know, he'd taken leave of his senses. You're not where you should be, not where a normal person should be. The normal pattern of behavior that would be considered normal human behavior did not describe Paul. Uh, they may, many have thought of him as unstable, traveling around, you know, beyond the grounds of discretion, perhaps. And, of course, Paul would agree that his behavior was not normal. In fact, uh, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, there's no slide, but I'll just read it to you. He said that very thing. He says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 
for they are what? Foolishness to him. And he can't understand them because they are what? Spiritually appraised. Right? And in just a few sentences later, he's going to defend this behavior by, uh, by, by pointing out in verse 17, right there in your passage, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creature, right? The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. You're going to be a lot different than you were when you come to faith. He simply says that if he's beside himself, it's for God. Anything that might seem like insanity to his critics, he was really this deep-hearted devotion for the Lord. That's what he wanted to make sure that they understand. Of course, this is, these are people on the outside looking in. They're making an evaluation of him, so he'll just play along with the evaluation. If I'm out of my mind, then it's for the Lord, see? He's consumed with a passion for the things of God. Getting out the gospel and discipling, bringing people to a, a, an awareness, a holy reverence for a future judgment. And if, on the other hand, he was of sound mind, again, outside looking in, when you act normal, Paul, it was for the sake of the Corinthians, in other words, in short, all of Paul's behavior could be explained in one of two ways. Again, this is, this is people on the outside looking in. This is, uh, you know, others as they look at Paul's ministry. It could be redefined in two ways. Either it was a zeal for God. So if he's, if he's beside himself, Paul says, you're looking at me. Understand, this is a zeal for God expressed through a single-minded pursuit of the loss or the gospel or of his fear of the Lord, which prompted a major motivation for his life, the beam of seat judgment. Or... If he was evaluated as sound mind, so you're acting normal, Paul, the normal things he did, you know, functioning in the world, making a living as a, as a tent maker, you know, as he, as he first met, uh, met uh, the folks there in, in Corinth, whatever they would consider normal behavior, that was for you. And mark this, this accusation of men being off point, listen, we see it in the scriptures more often than perhaps you've realized. Matthew chapter 11, verse 16 is a, is a, is a wonderful place to help us see that. Jesus is talking about uh, the, those who follow him, and he says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you didn't mourn. Verse 18, for John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. So John, was very, he abstained from, from uh, normal food, and he abstained from anything but water. And, and he's got a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, he's a gluttonous man and a drunkard. So the son of man comes. He eats normal food and drinks normal things. Oh, you're a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, Jesus said, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So here's the question. Was John a zealous man? I would say so. DC Talk made it pretty clear, right? Jesus freak. I love the, that, uh, those two verses. That second one that talks about John, right? Wasn't too concerned about where he slept or what he wore or what he ate, right? He was concerned about the kingdom of heaven. He looked straight at the Pharisees and said, you're a brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He picked him out right away, right? Everybody says, he's a nut job. He's got a demon. Single focus, kingdom of heaven, making the way straight. What about Jesus? Would you say he's zealous for the kingdom? I'd say, right? Did he, did he say exactly what needed to be said? He sure did. Right, he looked right at the Pharisees and he called them a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. He walks into the temple. What happens? They're just changing money and cheating everybody. And he just turns over the tables and kicks everybody out. I'd say he was single-minded. A zeal for, his, uh, for the Lord's temple. But he ate and drank like normal people do. Everybody says, oh, he's out of his mind. 
You know, alcohol has gotten him out of his mind. He's lost his senses. You know how a person who's drunk, you know, is they're, they're crazy. They've lost balance. They've lost touch with reality. They don't know what's going on. They said of John the Baptist, he's controlled by a spirit. They said of Jesus, he's controlled by alcohol. You know, that's how they explained away the zeal, see, and the passion and the truth. That sounds very much like what they're saying about Paul, right? Remember Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, when they said about Jesus, this man cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Imagine saying that about Jesus as you watched him deliver people from demons. He casts out by Beelzebub. The main demon is helping him do all this work. This is their response to his works. This man's filled with Satan, they said. That's how they explain Jesus. They say he's mad because he's filled with Satan or he's drunk. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. He says, and he came home. A crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. So he comes back to his residence. There's a huge crowd there. Verse 21, when his own people heard of this, they went out to custody of him, for they were saying he's lost his senses. He's got so many people there, he can't even eat in his own home. See, It's overrun with people who have need, and his own people, when they heard, and so he goes out, he's just taking care of needs, he's making sure people are ministered to, and his own people, when they heard this, they go out to take custody of him, can you imagine? Let's go take custody of him. He has no idea what he's doing. This is Jesus. He's lost his mind. He's lost his senses. You know what they want to do? They, you know, take custody of him, put him away somewhere, lock him up because he's gone nuts. That's the only way he could explain him from a human perspective. That's, that's how it is with Paul. The, the others who are looking on, they say, Paul, I mean, what is up with you? You're a nut job. You're out of your mind. Paul says, listen, if I'm out of my mind, it's for the Lord. Acts 26, 24, Paul's given a very powerful, straightforward, clear message of the gospel and his calling. And there's this response in Acts 26, 24, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus is squirming in his seat. Paul's, talk, Paul's not talking, I saw him in the other day, it's like pastor begins to talk about sin and he looks right at you and you think, oh, he knows everything about me. I have no idea what I'm looking at when I'm teaching. So if I accidentally land on your, on your face, it's, not, it's accidental, okay? And if you feel convicted, that's not me, okay? So Paul's talking to Festus, and um, he's in the middle of his defense about his life and what he does, and Festus interrupts him in a very loud voice. I mean, if he's not, if he's not a conviction, how, you know, he's like blurts out this really loud thing right in the middle of Paul talking, right? Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Uh, Paul says in verse 25, he says, um, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but utter words of sober truth. I'm speaking exactly the truth from the word of God. But Festus, as he looks on, you're out of position, Paul. You're, you're off the mark. You drifted away from where you, the normal, where you should be. See? And it appears that this is exactly what we have going on here in 2 Corinthians 5.13. You know, if we're out of our minds, he says it's for God. What do you mean? Well, if you're thinking we've taken leave of our senses by our single-minded devotion to the kingdom, then know this. It's for God that we do this. That's what that's supposed to look like. And if I'm passionate, he says, if I'm zealous, if I'm dogmatic, if I'm committed to persuading men about the judgment, it's for God. And it's words of sober truth. Because this, this beam of seat judgment date is already set, beloved. And we approach it every single day. We knock off a day of the calendar as we approach that beam of seat judgment. Paul says, my conscience is being informed by his word, which he has exalted to the level of his own name. I read his word, I understand what it says, and I live that way, and I teach that way. And so if you think I'm out of my mind, just realize this is for the Lord. It's the truth of God I'm dealing with. It's a stewardship, and so there's 
a passion in the delivery of it. And that's our eighth confidence and conscience principle. It's a wholehearted, listen, beloved, a wholehearted commitment to inform your conscience with the word of God and then living in harmony with that conscience will cause some people to question your sanity. And you don't have to put up your hand, but I could join you in some of the comments my family have made of me over the years about what, I, what are you doing? And I know that you've, you guys are suffering with that too. Some of your close family have said, you're nuts. What, what are you even doing this for? But beloved, when they do that, they help you affirm the confidence you're going to have in the future, okay? If your conscience is being informed by the word of God, now you're not living holier now, you're not condemning them and all that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just living a wholehearted devotion for the Lord and aligning your family and what you do with the very fabric of Christ and, and in your house. People are going to think you're nuts. And, and you're going to have confidence for the future that you used up your life for the kingdom and that puts you, beloved, in pretty good company. Okay? That puts you in John's company, that puts you in Jesus' company and Paul's company and others. Peter said this uh, in this way to his readers. He said, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. In other words, unable to be called out, okay? So that when they look at you, uh, you know, they may have some bad things to say to you, but ultimately what you're doing is correct. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they say, you're, you're a nut. This is wrong, okay? Think about the culture, okay, and, and how they malign Christianity that's just wicked. That's just so judgmental and, you know, all that kind of stuff. See, they slander you as evildoers. In the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, beloved, you know that those who are unredeemed on that day of visitation, that's not going to be a pretty good day for them, okay? That's going to be the beginning of a very bad eternity. But there will be the witness of your good conscience and your good actions over the long term before them so they can understand that it was truth. They've been blinded, right? And we, we, we understand that, right? They have, they, have a, they have a veil on that cannot be removed except from the Lord. So not going to see what you're doing in the right perspective. And if, and if that veil is not removed, they go to eternity, an eternity of judgment forever in hell. But they'll understand at the end that what you did was right. And so you can have that confidence in your conscience there. Because, beloved, here's the deal. If you're... Um, if you're blending in with the world around you pretty well, that is not going to bode well for a confident future. That's the other side. Okay? Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, but you may be blending in. If you're just kind of blending in with the world, nobody really recognizes you're a believer, that's not going to bode well for a confident future. If you're redeemed, you're not going to be cast away, but beloved, you're not building with gold, silver, and costly stone either if you're blending in. But, beloved, on the other side, if you're not blending well, if keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, then some things are going to be obvious, and those things will give you tremendous confidence in your conscience. Now, look at verses 14 and 15. We're going to finish up with this. He's, Paul says this, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Verse 15, And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I don't know about you, but this is one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. The first seven verses of this passage are so powerful. What is it? For the, the first seven English words. For the love of Christ controls us. Why does Paul continue in the ministry he has at great personal cost? 
Is it because he wants to honor the one who called him to apostleship? No doubt. He certainly wants to do that. But that's not the reason he gives here. Is it because he wants to continue to lay in a reward on the last day? Well, we know that he wants to do that, right? Because his whole, his whole ministry is motivated to inform people of that future judgment, to form believers. So we know that that's it. But that isn't the reason given here as an incentive for his work. And the answer Paul is going to give becomes really our next confidence and conscience principle. And then he uses the rest of verses 14 and 15 to explain it. So the answer is that the apostle is hemmed in by love. That's what he means. For the love of Christ controls us. That's how he says it. And that word control, uh, soon echo, it's a verb, soon echo in the Greek, present, active, indicative. This is the constant reality for Paul. It can be translated as constraints, uh, uh, to restrain or even to hold in custody. Luke 19, verse 43, gives us a good example, an illustration of, of how the word is used, and then some other words to help us get the feel of Paul's statement. So I'll read it to you. So Jesus gives us this good illustration. He says, for the day will come, as he's speaking about Israel, he says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade. There's the first one. That's not our word, but that's a word that's similar to our word against you and surround you. That's also not our word, but you get the idea, okay? And then here's our word, hem you in on every side. That's our word, suneko. In other words, Israel will be constrained and will only be able to go in one direction. Okay? Now, there's a parallel use of the verb translated controls, uh, suneko, in, in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. Uh, and he says, Paul says this, uh, I am hard-pressed, that's our word in the plural, suneko-mai, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's far very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So you get the sense, right? Knowing... In other words, knowing that all God has prepared for him in a glorified body in the presence of Jesus pushes him one way, okay, and that's our word, and knowing the benefit of the ministry God will do through him while he's still on earth pushes him another way, you see? So that's our word. He, he felt the pressure of two alternatives. So he was motivated on the one hand to do one thing, but on the other hand to do the opposite. So this illustrates the basic meaning of suneko, which is to press together, to constrain, to guide or, or, or force in one direction or to motivate to do something. It's the pressure applied not so much to control as to cause action. See? And when Jesus talked about Israel, see, he's going to hem you in on every side, and that action, of course, is to cause what? Repentance for Israel. So... We understand it's to, it's to cause action. It's a motivational factor more than a directional force. And we saw a verb here from verse 14 is in this present tense, which emphasizes the continuous nature of the pressure on Paul. The source of the pressure is the love of Christ. Now, the question perhaps that you've already asked is, okay, um, by the love of Christ, does Paul mean the love which is undoubtedly, he undoubtedly has for the Lord? Or is it the love Christ has for him, because it could be either one, right? Um, the love of Christ constrains us or controls us. Now, the rest of the verse lets us know what love it is, so let's look. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live, Mark this, beloved, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 
And here's the deal. It's Paul's recognition of Christ's love for him, shown in his death for all. That's what acts as the motivation for apostles' ministry. The love of Christ controls us. That's the love of Christ for Paul and for all. Because us pulls you in. Paul was so affected, he says, having concluded this, that one died for all. So, in other words, it's not some vague idea of Christ's goodwill that moved him, right? But rather the fact that one has died for all. And the us pulls you in, and that applies to you too. So the confound verb, one died, apothenin, is in the aorist tense, pointing back to a historic event of the cross. So that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, a statement to the effect that Paul just loved Jesus so much that he can do no other than serve, I mean, that'd be perceived as pretty subjective motivation. And if we're saying it, we're super fickle, aren't we? It's very easy to move off that point. My love for Jesus just inspires me to do everything I do. Well, I mean, there is some truth in that, and we do love him. And our response, of course, should be obedience, right? He that loves God obeys his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. But that's not the point here, see. The point here is, this is not some fickle love that Paul says, this is my motivation, you know. And then we hold Paul right here like we could never reach the point of Paul's love for Jesus. So that obviously excludes me from any of this upper thing. But if he admits that the love of Christ for him, a fallen sinner, is so deep and so vast and so intense that he has no choice and no desire to live for himself but for him who died, we can understand that immediately, can't we? And that's our ninth confidence and conscience principle. If you want to live your life with a clear conscience and come to the end of your life, having built with the right materials. Beloved, be controlled on a daily basis by the realization and impact of Jesus' love for you. A love that is so vast and so intense and so overwhelming and so unexplainable on a human level that it should guide everything that you do. And that's a, that's a real practical way to look at ourselves, right? The overwhelming, unbelievably intense, vast, unexplainable love of God on a human level, that's what motivates me. The love of Christ controls us. And you know that's right, don't you? That's the impact the death of Christ should have. And that's, that's what we want, isn't it? Isn't that the impact we want about Christ's death? There's a hymn. It's not very well known in the modern church, but it was written by a London merchant, Samuel Trevor Francis. Francis who lived into his 90s, died in 1925. He had a spiritual turning point as a teenager. He was contemplating suicide one night on the bridge over the River Thames. And he thought on the love of Christ, and then he penned this hymn, The Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. Do you know it? And I, and I think it begins to capture Paul's thoughts here on, on the control it places on every effort. Francis, in the midst of his depression, was really was constrained from following through with ending his life because of his realization of the depth of Christ's love for him. It it controlled him at that point. As a believer, a young teenager suffering depression and wanting to kill himself, the love of Christ controlled him. He realized that there was a deep depth of love that Christ had offered him on the cross that far exceeded his own understanding. But it was certainly 
worth more than him ending his life so carelessly. And it goes like this. Maybe you can just worship the Lord as I read it. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore, how he loveth, ever loveth, changes never, evermore. How he watches o'er his loved ones, died to call them all his own. How for them he intercedeth, watches o'er them from the throne. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me. And it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. And I, I think that we can understand some small fragment of all that Paul had to deal with. The pressures, the, the sentence of death on him, the care of the churches, his own suffering because of the completeness of Christ's love for him controls everything that he does. He puts up with all that he puts up with and all the uh, difficult times it is. And, and I think that's a good point to close with. May our work for the kingdom of course, be aligned in such a way that it is laying up treasure that's going to last. But may it be controlled by the love of Christ. When you're in your most discouraging moment, when you're in the hardest time that you're in, when you're contemplating all kinds of things, understand that deep, deep love of Christ. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. He died for all. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for a time to be together. We thank you for a beautiful reminder and an inviting image Paul gives us in the passage, followed up by this marvelous hymn that tried to capture it by Francis, being controlled by Christ's love, not merely inspired or encouraged or even inflamed, but controlled by Jesus' great love for us. It's hard to imagine a more-to-be-desired way of doing our life than that, or a freer condition of being healed from whatever ails us. It would mean that we would be free of everybody's opinion, as Paul said, and cultural agendas, really unfazed by the what-ifs or if-onlys of life. We wouldn't be preoccupied with what might go wrong or anchored in regrets from the past, things we did wrong. We'd be free, at peace, and kind. A people, of course, might think we're a bit odd or strange or crazy like they did Paul, but that would be okay. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have also died to our own life and by your Holy Spirit. Help us remember and rest in that good news that we've already been co-crucified with Christ and raised to newness of life in him by Jesus' finished work. And we've been set free from the old way and now live in the new creation. May our new status 
and our new privileges and the citizenship that we have and the bond that we have in Christ and the love that bridges the gap be increasingly real to us, Lord. And we understand our response. He died for all, and so because of that, we no longer live our life for ourselves. Instead, live a life for Christ who died and was raised for us. So may the love of Christ, Father, be so real and compelling to us and so overwhelming and so vast that we'll joyfully live for him in our relationships, in our vocation, in our sufferings, in our rejoicing, our weaknesses, in our encouragements, in all the circumstances that we can't control, and everything from our past that was forced on us. Help us to live with the certainty of a God we can count on so very, very faithful. And it's in his name, Christ, the lovely name we pray. And all God's people said,